this, as Davy said, this week's theme is on Master and on the autobiography of a yogi. And this has been a theme that we have had for the whole year, that we're trying to do what we can to bring the energy of that book out more and more. But this is an audience that is made up of people, almost all of whom have read that book, and many who've read it countless times over the years. As Davy says, it's a shapeshifter. And every time you read it, you get something different out of it. It's almost as if the book itself slips in parts that you've never seen before. But I want to begin by talking about the thought that our concept of Master and that book and what he came to accomplish is far, far too narrow. It's a much greater mission that he came with than what we realize. And so I want to talk about, begin talking in a broader way to put things in context because we're a little bit like ants crawling over a watermelon. You know, we see a little bit and we can taste the sweetness of where we are, but we don't get a picture of the whole because the scale is too big. So I want to talk a little bit about the yugas, but a thought came to me this morning that I found really fun and I'm going to share with you. So the yugas, for those of you who aren't familiar with the concept, is a great cycle of 24,000 years. And at the very top is the highest age of man, and it begins to descend for 12,000 years, and it hits the low point. And that low point in our uh, understanding of history was about 600 A.D., 599, actually, and so or 499. And so then it begins to ascend, and it ascends for another 1,200 years, and then it goes in, and that bottom portion is called Kali Yuga, the Dark Ages. Then it begins to come into the age that we're in now, you know, one of those maps you are here, well, you are here in 300 Dwapara, uh, roughly. So Dwapara, the, there's actually, it gets a little complicated, but I won't go into the complications. That's for you who want more. And I brought this out specifically. If you want to understand this, this is a fabulous, fabulous book. It shows uh, the whole range of the yugas, what happens during the yugas. It puts our understanding of history and what's happened in the history of mankind that we know into context. It's an absolutely fabulous book. I brought it here. I'm not going to read it. The title is The Yugas, and it is... It's written by Joseph Selby, Purushottama, and David Steinmetz. And it's, a, as I say, a fabulous read. If you don't have it, get it. If you haven't read it, read it. So, now, since we are here, and we're a ways into Dwapar Yuga, but the scale of Dwapar Yuga, this is the thought that came to me. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And if you don't, that's too bad. 
So the scale of Dwapara Yuga is too big for us to understand. 24,000 years, how do you put that into context and so on? So I thought, let's translate it into the age of a human being. So instead of 24,000 years, let's make it easy. It's 80 years. So a human, human life, I'm going to call him Dwaparian. So Dwaparian was born at the beginning of Dwapara Yuga, and he's going to live to be 80 years old. And right now, so every year of his life is 30 years of Dwapara Yuga. And so right now, Dwaparian is 10 years old. And so we kind of get a little bit anxious about what's going on in world events and why doesn't God get on with this whole show and uh, can't we speed things up? Well, he's only 10 years old and he's just beginning to come into cognizance of the world around him. Now, a 10-year-old, what does he need more than anything? A teacher. And so, Yogananda and this line that has come, they're the teachers for Dwapara Yuga. So we think of them, oh, they brought Kriya Yoga. Yes, of course they brought Kriya Yoga. Oh, he came to the West and gave a lot of talks. Yes, of course he did that. But it's a much greater, much more vast flow of energy that's going on. So, and I don't want to be sectarian in this. Yogananda is not the only teacher that comes in Dwapara Yuga. God sends teacher after teacher, but he is a great, great world teacher. And so what he brought was not just Kriya Yoga, not just meditation, not just how to live. He brought a roadmap of how to live successfully and happily during this time of Dwapara Yuga. So he's our teacher. We're 10 years old, and he's training us in those life skills, those attitudes, those practices that are going to allow us to be happy and to be successful, and most importantly of all, to have a proper relationship between us and God who has created everything, who has become everything. And so Yogananda coming, this line came basically at the beginning of Dwapara Yuga. Now they had been, I'm going to read a quote. Well, I'll read it right now. Because it fits in. This is a quote about that was, I just found in the third edition of the autobiography of a yogi. That's the edition, which was the last edition that Master was in his body and made any changes. And this is from the the uh, note, the author's note at the beginning of the book. And he says, Note to the third edition. I have been intensely moved to receive letters from thousands of readers Their comments and the fact that this book has been translated into many languages encourages me to believe that the West has found in these pages an affirmative answer to the question, has the ancient science of yoga 
any worthwhile place in the life of modern man? Has the ancient science of yoga any place, any worthwhile place in the life of modern man? And so that is what these great masters came in order to show us. Yoga, obviously, is an ancient science. It goes way, way back. But talking about the yugas, one aspect of the yugas is that these two halves, descending and ascending, are like reflections of each other. What happens in one age happens in the other age, So, but in many ways in the opposite direction. So one of the things that happened during Kali Yuga, the descending dark age, is that for about 500 years or 600 years, maybe even longer, there was the destruction of knowledge. There was the burning of libraries, and it happened all over the world, burning the libraries of Alexandria, burning the libraries in Rome, the the destruction of knowledge. Uh, Davy and I read a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Sorry, Hrimon, but we thought the title was a joke. (laughs) When, When we first read it. But in fact, and to you too, Ananta, and the McSweeney clan, I I do apologize. But in fact, what the book pointed out is that as the waves of destruction happened across Europe, the Irish took many of the great books and took them to little islands and began, the monks there began copying them. And they copied those what knowledge they could hold on to, and then reseeded Europe with that great knowledge from the ancient wisdom. So this ancient science of yoga is now being rediscovered. Now, as this is fascinating because as the world began to go into Kali Yuga, this ancient science was brought out of just verbal teaching into written teaching. And it was presented in the form of the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita. And who are the two great heroes in the Gita? It's a conversation between Krishna and Arjuna. And that is as if the instructions that mankind needs in order to go into a darker age. And as it has been said about the Gita and is also true about the Uh, autobiography of a yogi, that book is not something to be read. It is something to be lived. And so the autobiography of a yogi is not a book to be read. It is a a roadmap of how we need to live in this age. But coming back to Krishna and Arjuna and that dialogue between them is like the ending period of Dwapara Yuga, descending And what happens in ascending? The same two characters, Krishna and Arjuna, now in the form of Babaji and Yogananda, are giving us the instructions that we need as we go forward into Dwapara Yuga. And so I mentioned this at a meeting on Saturday, but I want to talk a little bit about 
this, I feel that there have been three waves of energy that have gone out starting uh, with the release of energy in Dwapara Yuga from our particular line of gurus. The first wave happened in India, and it was when Babaji called Lahiri Mahashaya to him, and he instructed him, reawakened him, one might say, in the science of Kriya Yoga. He manifested a golden palace, initiated him. But before he initiated him, he put him into samadhi for eight days or nine days. You know, so he planted some seeds there. Um, At any rate, at that time, it was the release of these spiritual teachings into the world. But another very, very significant event happened at that time. Lahiri Mahashaya begged Yogananda to let him stay with him there in the, uh, excuse me, begged uh, Babaji to let him stay with him there in the Himalayas. He did. He had a family. He had children. He had responsibilities in his office. He wanted to leave all that. He wanted to use the model that had been used for many, many uh, centuries in Kali Yuga, which was to leave the city, stay in the Himalayas, don't mix with people, don't mix with that madness down there because it's it's too dark, it's just unenlightened. What did Babaji reply? No, you can't do that. Your job is to go back and live in that madness, but live as a yogi in that madness, to live in Varanasi, to resume your job. Interestingly enough, his job was to work for the English. He was an accountant, and his boss was an Englishman. I'll come back to that because the mixing of East and West is a very, very important. Because Draparian, he's not Indian, he's not American, he is a global citizen. In Kali Yuga, people didn't travel generally more than 25 miles or even five miles from where they were born. You certainly can't say that of this audience. Kurt certainly can't say that of Davy and me. Draparian is a global citizen. And so, at any rate, Lahiri sent, uh, was sent back to Varanasi, and there he trained many, many great yogis. We see him, of course, he trained Sri Yukteswar, and Sri Yukteswar trained Master, and that's what, what we think. But he trained thousands of people. He was the greatest yogi of his time, a Mahayogi. And so that training of, of all of these people was the first wave of energy of Dwapara Yuga. But it was contained within India because that's where these teachings came from. It's where the soil was fertile and where it could get its start. And so that little plant had to grow up enough so that you could put it in a pot and carry it and transplant it. And that pot was Yogananda. That teacher was Yogananda. And so... When Sri Teshwar met Babaji, why did he meet Babaji? He was at the Kumbh Mela, 
And in his mind, he was complaining about the ignorance of the Kumbh Mela and how it's much better in the West, where at least people are using their minds. They may not be spiritual, but they aren't falsely spiritual. They aren't hyper... They aren't... They aren't uh, what is the word I'm searching for? Hypocrites. They aren't hypocrites who pretend to be spiritual, but actually are there for begging. Babaji picks up his thoughts, draws him to him, and says, I'm going to send you someone to train, to bring this science, to bring this roadmap, to bring how to live in Dwapara Yuga to the West. I see your interest in it. And so Yogananda is trained by by Sri Yukteswar. Now, Yogananda is, from ancient times, he's Arjuna. He's been a yogi for thousands and thousands of years, an enlightened yogi. You know, we think from reading the autobiography that, oh, and Swami has pointed this out, oh, how lucky Yogananda was to meet all of these great saints. And, gee, I wish I had been that lucky. Yogananda was greater than any of those saints that he met. We were in, uh, he lived during his teenage years with Tulsi Bose and in that family primarily. We were there and Tulsi's grandson told us we were sitting in a little room half the size of this stage and that was Yogananda's bedroom during that time. And Tulsi's grandson said that when Yogananda was a teenager, before he met Sri Yukteswar. He would sit in that room with his Sanskrit teacher, Kabalananda, and other great saints who lived in the in the area. They would sit in the room. Tulsi Bose would sit outside and guard the door so nobody would disturb them. They would be in the room. They would go into samadhi, leave their bodies, and their bodies would levitate. And so that's the person that was going around and meeting these great saints and why the great saints were asking him questions rather than the other way around. But he doesn't present it that way in the autobiography. At any rate, so Yogananda is trained and he's sent to the West. And the second great wave of energy of Dwapara Yuga is that he churns the ether. He goes on his spiritual campaigns and he talks to thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. The most popular lecturer in the country during the time that he was active. And then he establishes a place where people can come and be trained to him. And so that churning of the ether from 1920 up to 1952, was Yogananda's, again, remember all the way back, Lahiri worked for an English person. Sri Yukteswar had the interest in the West. Yogananda comes to the West because India, with its spiritual knowledge, the West with the knowledge of how to work effectively through activity, these need to be joined together in a global citizenship. And so that's part of the mission is the joining of East and West. So Yogananda accomplishes that. And then at the end of his life, he draws people to him. And then on July 31st, 1949, there was a very significant 
event. And I'm just now realizing the significance of that, seeing these waves of energy. So the first wave is the release of Kriya and these teachings into the world. Second wave is the beginning, the bringing them to the West and releasing them at least in terms of teachings and the knowledge. And then the third wave took place on July 31st, 1949. Many of you have heard this, and you're going to hear it again. And those of you who haven't, well, this is thrilling. So Master had been invited to a garden party in Beverly Hills by a wealthy person who was associated a little bit. And basically he was there in order to meet people and perhaps to... Um, have some funds flow his way to help support the work that he was doing. And they asked him to give a talk. And Swami said, what is normally expected of a talk of that nature? It's to get up and say, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to have invited me here. I'm so happy to be here, so happy to see you all. And perhaps you would like to visit Mount Washington or contribute to the work and so on. Master didn't go that direction. <laughs> Never did Swami writing, I remember especially how stirred I was by the talk he gave at the garden party in Beverly Hills on July 31st, 1949. Never had I imagined that the power of human speech could be so overwhelming. It was the most moving talk I have ever heard. This day, he thundered, punctuating every word, marks the birth of a new era. I want to repeat that because he's saying something specific, not general. This day marks the birth of a new era. My spoken words are registered in the ether, in the Spirit of God, and they shall move the West. Self-realization has come to unite all religions. We must go on, not only those who are here, but thousands of youths must go north, south, east, and west to cover the earth with little colonies, demonstrating that simplicity of living plus high thinking lead to the greatest happiness. Now those thousands of youths, not only those who are here, but thousands of youths, that's all of us. And so this third wave of energy that is going out by the great teacher of Dwapara Yuga is to take these teachings out of the theoretical ether and to begin to live them, to begin to practice them, to begin to create communities world brotherhood colonies where these teachings can be lived and can be shared and can be done powerfully enough so that they become a model for others to live in the right way, in the harmonious way during Dwapara Yuga. So you see now how Yogananda is a world teacher and he's got a world mission to show us how to live in Dwapara Yuga. And his great messenger, his life plan, his owner's manual, 
His roadmap for this is the autobiography of a yogi. And that book has gone out and it's reached millions and millions of people and it will continue to reach millions and millions more. And it is changing the mindscape of humanity. It's changing the mind. It's the owner manual for Dwaparian who's 10 years old. How are you going to grow up? How are you going to live properly? How are you going to be happy? How are you going to be successful? High living, uh, excuse me, strike that, reverse that. High thinking plus simple living will lead to the greatest happiness. What is high thinking? It's all of the teachings. It's Kriya Yoga, but not just Kriya Yoga. Think of Kriya Yoga as the apex of a whole system of how in this age we relate to God. We relate to our spiritual nature. One of the things that Master did in the autobiography of a yogi, there are 49 chapters in that. I think every chapter in there has some kind of a miracle or some kind of a miraculous event. Why does he have so many miracles? Why does he have so many saints? Why does he have so much of this kind of energy? Well, in one sense, you can say, well, it's like a you know, a fishing lure. You can't just throw the hook out there. You need feathers and fluffy things and shiny things. You need to attract people. So he put it in there in order to attract people. As Christ said, lest you show signs and wonders, they will not heed you. And so, yes, he showed signs and wonders, but much, much more than that. See, in Dwapar Yuga, as opposed to Kali Yuga, in Kali Yuga matter, physical things were the total expression. Our body, big structures, separate countries, little villages, all of these physical separated things, that was what the matrix of life was. Well, Yogananda said that is not true in Dwapara Yuga. Why does he have all these miracles? Why does he have all these saints? Because what he's saying is that there is a unity of spirit. Spirit becomes energy. Energy expresses as consciousness. And that expresses as matter. And all of that unity is what we need to become aware of. Here are the techniques. Here's Kriya Yoga. Here is the teaching that will help the ancient science of yoga that he was happy that the West saw that that could be a pattern for how we live. He's putting out that ancient science of yoga, showing the unity of consciousness and of spirit, and that the purpose of mankind, the way that we will become happy in Dwapara Yuga, the purpose of life, the purpose of our lives, is to find that great unity, which he called self-realization, has been called samadhi, has been called moksha, but it is the concept Not just the concept, it is the living reality of merging our individual consciousness into that great unitive consciousness. And when that mergence takes place, 
Everything completely changes. Does it matter on the physical plane? Of course it matters on the physical plane. You can heal your body. He gives in the autobiography of a yogi the incident where this, sorry, Weight Watchers, but where Sri Yukteswar gains 50 pounds, loses 50 pounds, gains 50 pounds because he's been ill and weak. Babaji is showing him, or Lahiri Mahashaya is showing him, that mind and body are interrelated. And as we think, so our body becomes. Now, Western science is just beginning to catch up to this kind of a thought. Yogananda, when he was a little boy, six years old or something like that, he stopped his heart, became as if dead. The family was weeping. His beloved maid was weeping. He, of course, was aware of all of this. And she was saying, oh, how do without him? She'd always been chastising him. How can I live without him? And then he pops up live again. Still, modern medicine doesn't have an answer for that one. See, mind and body are one thing. Matter and energy are one thing. Mind, energy, body, matter, and spirit are one thing. And when we pursue the path that leads us to unity with the consciousness that we are a part of everything, that leads us to self-realization, when we pursue, when we pursue that path, that leads to highest happiness. It leads to success. It is not a teaching that is divorced from how we live. But Yogananda said that. He said it again and again in Autobiography of a Yogi. He taught it when he went out. But it's not enough to tell people these things. It's not enough to say these things. They have to be lived And so that third wave of energy that went out, thousands of youths must come and live these teachings. And that pulse of energy, many of us were still in the astral world. A few of us were barely here. I was five years old at the time. But that pulse of energy went out to call us so that we could not only live these teachings, live the autobiography in such a way that it changed our lives, but that we became models for others. And that pulse of energy now is changing the mindscape of the whole planet. There are millions of people that meditate daily in this country, there are millions of millions of people who practice yoga, who understand, at least on some level, the subtle flow of energy, the energy in the body, and it's all of this. See, it's a it's a global teaching, and it isn't confined just to the spiritual. What we think of as the spiritual path. It's entering science. It's entering meditation. It's entering medicine. It's entering business. It's Steve Jobs. 
I mean, his parting gift to mankind was the autobiography of a yogi, the only book that he kept on his iPad, the book that he read every year for his entire adult life. See, that energy is entering everywhere because it has to be lived, it has to be taken out of the corridors of musty libraries and ancient religions, and it must be applicable to every phase of life. So we are that third wave. In a certain sense, we're lab rats because we're experimenting with these teachings. How do they affect raising a family? How do they affect starting a business? How do they affect the matrix of people living together in community? Does it work? Will it cure crime? Well, I can tell you the answer to that. There's never been a crime at Ananda committed by an Anandite. Outsiders think there's a, maybe an easy target here and they'll come and steal a little bit somewhere. Does it cure things like anger and hatred and narrow-mindedness and racial discrimination and um, hatred of other, of other countries? Ananda is one family. It's a global family. And there's no difference between this family. Davy and I travel all over the world. There is no difference in this global family, whether you speak Italian or German or Hindi or Bengali or Spanish or Minnesotan. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. It's one global family. Dwaparian is a global citizen, and he's being trained in how to do that. So this pulse of energy goes out and those of us have been, who are deeply committed have been with Master in this line before. So we're born into the West, and how do we get awakened? Here I was born into one of the less awakened communities in America, Austin, Minnesota. That's where I grew up. It, I wasn't born there, but from the time I was in fifth grade. Now, Austin, Minnesota is the epicenter of spam. <laughs> it is the headquarters of Hormel Meatpacking Company. And Hormel is famous for spam. Now that is not the most enlightened community in the world to be born into if you're a yogi. And so I didn't know, you know... I knew I wanted something more. I didn't know where to go, how to find it. By the time I was 12, I didn't find it in my church that I went to every week. By the time I was 12 and 13, I actually began to get lightheaded as if I was suffocating in the church. And I had to literally, I would have passed out. I had to literally go out of the church, sit out in the fresh air, because that old form didn't fit my consciousness but I didn't have any words any concept any way of expressing the fact that I knew this didn't work so as a 13 year old I rejected religion because for me that was the only religion and so it didn't work 
I rejected it. I became an agnostic. And not until, and but I was still searching. I was searching for self-realization. I'd been a yogi before. Most of us have been. I was searching for that. But how do you find that in Austin, Minnesota? You don't, you don't find it easily. So when I studied, I studied to the best of my ability consciousness. And so my field of study was psychology. But psychology as taught in 1960 in the University of Minnesota did not dwell on samadhi <laughs> or moksha or self-realization, or the scope of human consciousness. It dwelt on lab rats and how if you tweaked them this way, they would behave that way. And so, but still I was, I was searching. Finally, when I graduated, I came and within six months, I found Autobiography of a Yogi. And my story is not unique. It is the story of thousands and thousands and millions of people that they know that there's something more. They know that life can be different. They know that there's infinite potential within them, but they have no words. They have no models. They have no way of finding that. And the autobiography comes along and it says, here's the way, here's the roadmap. Here is the energy. Here is the consciousness. And here are 45 different saints who perform hundreds of miracles, and they do it because of consciousness, nothing else. And that book reached into my heart and changed my life. It has reached into the hearts and minds of millions of people and begun to change their lives. But those people who are reading that book need more than just reading that book. They are asking the question, this sounds good. It sounds like a nice theory. But does it work? And we are here as the third wave to answer that question, does it work? And we are here to say a resounding Yes, it works. Good morning. In 1946, many things happened. It was a time in world history, up till this point in the 20th century, there had been two global wars, and thousands of people had died cruelly, not only through engaged in battle, but through man's inhumanity to man in camps of torture and suffering and deprivation. The atomic bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, showing the potential for destruction that man had uncovered. 
and the world was at a crossroads. People had not only lost, humanity had not only lost lives, but they had lost idealism and innocence. They had lost hope, and they had lost faith. And then, in 1946, very quietly, something else happened. A book was published, Autobiography of a Yogi, by Paramahansa Yogananda, quietly entered the stage. And this book, as Jyotish has been expressing so eloquently, is not merely a book. It is a carrier wave for the great consciousness of uplifted beings who are trying to guide the planet. And this book entered the stage quietly, just as quietly 2,000 years earlier, a man, a simple man, born in a family of carpenters, was standing on a small hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and he addressed the multitudes. Let's face it, it was probably a couple of hundred people. We've been on that hill. It's not a big hill, the Mount of Beatitudes, it's called now. And he said the words that just like Yogananda's words are registered in the ether, he said things like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And those words spoken on that hill that day, 2,000 years ago, still reverberate in the ether. We were there on a pilgrimage some years ago, and we stood on the Mount of Beatitudes, and we heard this murmur going on, and at first we didn't know what it was. And then we realized there were groups of people from all nations, and they were saying, they were repeating the Beatitudes in Korean, in Chinese, in Japanese, French, Spanish, German, and they were all saying it in their own language. And it was the words registered in the ether. And so the autobiography enters the stage quietly, humbly. But then, two years later, something else happens. And there's a young man living in New York. This is September 1948. As we do our math, the autobiography, it's, this is its 70th anniversary. So two years later, 68 years ago, there's a young man living in New York, and he's desperately unhappy. He's been seeking for meaning and truth and a sense of where is his place in this world his whole life. And he's really at the point of just about giving up hope that he will ever find it. And then miraculously, he walks into a bookstore, Brentano's on Fifth Avenue, and he sees the autobiography. First day he sees it, he opens it, and he, it says, Autobiography of a Yogi Dedicated to an American Saint, Luther Burbank. And he said, American Saint, fat chance. And he closes the book and walks away. But then he's drawn back. 
and he knows he has to buy that book, and he clutches it to his heart, and he rushes to his room where he was living in a little boarding house because he was going to, this man who we now know as Swami Kriyananda, was going to join the Merchant Marines and just lose himself in this world. But instead, he's drawn to autobiography of a yogi. And the greatest testimony I can share with you about the power and meaning and beauty and value of this book are his words, Swamiji's words, as he describes it, as he begins to read it. And then began the most thrilling literary adventure of my life. Autobiography of a Yogi is the story of a young Bengali Indian's intense search for God. It describes a number of living saints he met on his journey, especially his own great guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar. It also describes more clearly than any other mystical work I have ever read the author's experiences with God, including the highest one possible, samadhi, mystical union. In chapter after chapter, I found moving testimony to God's living reality, not only in infinity, but in the hearts and lives of living human beings. I read of how Yogananda's prayers, even for little things, had been answered, and how by placing himself unreservedly in God's hands, his unanticipated needs had been met unfailingly. I read of intense love for God, such as I myself yearned to possess, of a relationship with him more intimate, more dear than I had dared to imagine possible. Until now, I had supposed that life, that a life of meditation might give me at best a little peace of mind. But here I discovered all at once that the fruit of the spiritual life is a love and bliss beyond expectation, beyond imagination of expectancy. Until recently, I had doubted the value of prayer except perhaps as a means of uplifting oneself. But now I learned and doubt for a moment that God relates individually, lovingly, to each and every seeker. Miracles abound in this book. Many of them, I confess, were quite beyond my powers of acceptance at the time. Instead of, instead of dismissing them, however, I would certainly have done which I certainly would have done had I read almost any other book, I suspended my incredulity, for the spirit of this story was so deeply honest, so transparently innocent of pride, so transparently innocent of pride or impure motive, that it was impossible for me to doubt that its author believed implicitly every word he wrote, Never had before had I encountered a spirit so clearly truthful, so filled with goodness and joy. Every page seemed radiant with light. As I read Autobiography of a Yogi, I alternated between tears and laughter, tears of pure joy, laughter of even greater joy. 
For three days, I scarcely ate or slept. And when I walked, it was almost a tiptoe, as if in an ecstatic dream. What this book described finally was the highest of sciences, Kriya Yoga, a technique that enables the seeker to advance rapidly on the path of meditation. I, who wanted so desperately to learn how to meditate, felt all the excitement of one who had found a treasure map, the treasure in this case being a divine one, buried deep within my own being. Autobiography of a Yogi Remains, the greatest book I have ever read. One perusal of it was enough to change my whole life. That's the essence of Swami Kriyananda, and it's why he did everything he did. We wouldn't be sitting here without that moment in time. And as he took the next bus from New York out to Los Angeles, his two thoughts were, these teachings are so great, and I must share them with everyone. And so, yes, autobiography of a yogi is a carrier wave from the, from the great masters of Im, time immemorial. But it was Swamiji who told us that this wave existed. Without him, none of us, I, certainly speaking for myself, would have understood what this book was. And so Swami came to his Guruji September 12th, 1948, knelt at his feet and said, I want to be your disciple. And Master accepted him. Thank God for all of us that he did. And, and in the conversation that ensued, Master said, how did you like my book, meaning autobiography? And Swamiji said, it was wonderful, sir. And Master said, that's because it has my vibrations in it. My vibrations are in it. So now, let's talk about what are these vibrations that moved Swamiji, that have moved all of us, and famous people, I wouldn't say infamous people, but people without fame, humble people, humble seekers. What, is the, what are those vibrations, and what is its message? Well, I think we find it in these words, this passage of Swami. First of all, that God is a living reality, not just something in infinity, but living in the hearts of people, and that he can be, he or she can be experienced in our own heart. This is a total diversion from the way religion is expressed in the West. God is out there, you supplicate, you're a sinner, but within you, no, how could, you, how could that be? We are sinners, Western tradition tells us. But this living reality, and, and Master takes it even more beautifully. He said this living reality is not a stern judge, it's not a, someone critical of us, someone saying, okay, you poor deluded souls, come along, I'll show you the way. It is our Divine Mother. This is mass, how Master saw God and how he presented it in our time. 
again, at times, Swami has said that the energy of women, and I'm not talking politics now, please believe me, but he said the energy of women, that caring, compassionate, sacrificing, selfless nature that is inherent in the feminine nature needs to be brought to the fore now. And so to worship God as the Divine Mother, to know that she has our highest interest at heart. And no matter how many times we fall, no matter how many times we blow it, that Divine Mother says, come, come home. You are loved. I am with you. I am in your own heart. And the beautiful stories Master tells in autobiography of when he lost his own mother, and this was the greatest grief of his life, the greatest loss She was a great soul. And, you know, speaking of Master being a great saint that he masks in the pages of autobiography, if you read it carefully, all the saints he goes to call him Chotomahashaya, little, he translates it little sir, but that's not the meaning of it. It's little great soul, young great soul. So all these saints are saying, Young, great soul, you have come. And they received his blessings. And so Master was bereft. He had lost his mother. And for years he grieved, and it was a pain that wouldn't go away. Until finally in the the loving, living presence came to him, and he saw her eyes in a vision. But then they expanded, and it wasn't just his his own mother's eyes, It was the eyes of many, many mothers, all mothers. And she said, I have loved you in many forms, through many incarnations. Always have I loved thee. Ever shall I love thee. And his heart was healed of that pain. You know, this morning as we were meditating, I could feel in my heart as I was trying to tune in to the presence of Divine Mother in my own heart, I could physically feel the areas of my own heart that were closed to God's presence. And I I suggest and offer you this exercise to practice. Sit in meditation. And yes, we all love God. We wouldn't be here if we didn't. But feel those areas of your heart where you don't let her in. I could feel it physically, and it hurt. And try to open those areas, release those areas. We'll never, we'll never know the true fulfillment of our lives as long as we keep those little parts closed off. So that beautiful story. And then the story, A Heart of a Stone Image, where Master's sister Roma and her her husband, his brother-in-law, Satish, he's a materialist, and he mocks her devotion. He mocks her pictures of saints and so forth. And she asks her brother, please change my husband, please. And so they go on a little journey, the little trip. They're in Kolkata. They go to Dakshineshwar, the beautiful Kali temple where uh, Paramahansa Ramakrishna lived and worshipped the Divine Mother in the form of Kali. And Master sat for five hours 
praying, praying, praying with deep yearning, please come change this material-minded man. Hours he sat. Nothing happened. And then he got up and he realized that the temple of Dakshineshwar was huge. It was the astral temple. And that's why when we go to places of pilgrimage, why it's important. It's not what we see with the physical eyes. There is a reality in those places that the soul recognizes that the eyes cannot see. And then he saw the image of Kali, and she became huge. And he knew that she had answered his prayer, the Divine Mother. What difference did it make if that man, Satish, one materialistic man amidst the billions in India of materialistic people, what difference did it make? But when the heart asks, Divine Mother responds. The Divine Mother responds to the prayers. And so this is one of the, the messages of autobiography, the living presence of God. No prayer is too small. I remember... When I was just newly on the path, some of you have heard this story. I'd been on in about a year or so. And I had memorized the poem Samadhi, as Master suggested. And I had gone back to visit my family who lived in the suburbs. I didn't live in Austin, Minnesota, but I lived in St. Louis, Missouri, which is the home of Budweiser. So (laughs) it's not too far below that. But I was walking in the suburbs one afternoon just to sort of get out of the family house. And I was repeating the poem Samadhi, and there's one line, the sparrow, a grain of sand, falls not without my sight. And my eyes were semi-closed. I was walking on the sidewalk, and just then my foot touched a little something, and I looked down, the sparrow falls not without his sight. And there was a little sparrow that had fallen out of its nest, and it, was, it wasn't alive anymore. It was dead. But it was like God was saying, I hear you. I hear every response, every yearning of your heart. Don't think I'm not with you. I am a living reality. And then another theme, of course, is the intensity of devotion that Master had And it was that intensity that enabled him to come to the West, the love of God that enabled him to come in the 1920s. And if you read some of his letters, he said, I have to, I lecture every night and I have to go to these uh, clubs like Kiwanis Club and all these different places, things like that, where everyone's smoking. And he said, I come home and my hair is reeking with tobacco smoke. I can hardly breathe. It wasn't easy for him. We need to do our part. If he could do that, we need to do our little part. But he said, then I came and I said, Divine Mother, nothing will stop my love for you. And he went on his campaigns and he was undaunted by that. But that intensity of love for God, at whatever cost, and we read about this in the chapter in I Meet My Guru, where he's... He's in the Banaris ashram, not of, of another guru, but he's so yearning 
to find his guide, his guru, and he prays. And he said, one morning, for hours, I was sobbing in this little room. And please, I can't go on another day. My love for you is so intense. I have to see you. And then again, this divine womanly voice of Divine Mother comes and says, Thy master cometh today. And he dries his tears and he runs out and they say, Makunda, go on these errands. And that's the day. He turns and there on Serpentine Lane, there he stands, the face that he had seen in visions, haunting him, calling him his guru, Sri Ekteshwar. And then again, that intensity of devotion And the answered prayers that come, he's called to go to the West. This is long ago ordained. Babaji told Lahiri, told Sri Akteshwar, I will send you a disciple. And Master knows he has to go. But not without fear. Not without fear. Because the West, he doesn't even speak English, for heaven's sake. And he, he said, I I was going to go. I had my ticket. I had my passport, which he got miraculously, if you hear the story. It's not in autobiography. But he says, I needed still confirmation from the divine. And I sat in my little room in Four Garpar Road. You know, last spring, Jyotish and Dion and I went uh, at the end of a very intensive schedule, but we went to Calcutta to visit Master's relatives at Forgarpar Road. And we got a little, we parked, the, we had a taxi and we parked it, but we got lost. And so we were wandering in this neighborhood. We knew it was somewhere nearby, but we didn't, we couldn't zero in on it. And it was the most wonderful experience because we were just wandering the streets in the neighborhood of Forgarpar Road. And I thought, Master walked these streets. He ran over to Tulsi Bose's house. He, he went home this way. He probably went to a little uh, confection stand and a little chai stall there. And it was just like we were kids playing on the streets of Calcutta. And then we found the house and we went in. But Master was in that room and he was, he said, I was, I'll, I'll read it because he says it better than I can portray. One early morning, I began to pray with adamant determination to continue to even die praying until I heard the voice of God. I wanted his blessing and assurance that I would not lose myself in the fogs of modern utilitarianism. My heart was set to go to America, but even more strongly was it resolved to hear the solace of divine permission I prayed and prayed, muffling my sobs. No answer came. My silent petition increased in excruciating crescendo until at noon I had reached a zenith. My brain could no longer withstand the pressure of my agonies. If I cried once more with an increased depth of inner passion, I felt as though my brain would split. At that moment, there was a knock on the door from the vestibule adjoining the Gorpur Road room in which I was sitting. Opening the door, I saw a young man in the scanty garb of a renunciate. 
He came in, closed the door behind him, and refusing my request to sit down, indicated with a gesture that he wished to talk to me while standing. He must be Babaji, I thought, dazed. He answered my thoughts. Yes, I am Babaji. He spoke melodiously in Hindi. Our Heavenly Father has heard your prayers. He commands me to tell you, follow the behests of your guru and go to America. Fear not, you will be protected. After a vibrant pause, Babaji addressed me again. You are the one I have chosen to spread the message of Kriya Yoga in the West. Long ago, I met your guru Yukteswar at a Kumbha Mela. I told him I would send you to him for training. So, you know, we have our spiritual desires. We have our, oh, gee, I'd like to be able to do Kriya better. I'd like to be able to have more devotion. I'd like to be able to open my heart. But this is what it takes. It's not just a random thought. It's not a passing sentiment. It's the intensity until you feel you have no more to give. And that's when God comes. And Master showed us that is how you do it. And so another theme we find is a message of hope, of hope for every one of us, because Master said the time for knowing God has come through the guru-disciple relationship and its concomitant practice of Kriya Yoga. People often say, well, why do you make it so hard to get Kriya? Some people just give it in a weekend. Some people give it in a day. Yeah, you can do that. But it's part, Kriya Yoga practice is part of the consciousness of our great line of masters. Without attunement to them, it's simply mechanical breathing. With attunement to them, it's a technique of liberation. And so they, in the pages of autobiography, the beautiful presentation, one of my favorite chapters of all, I have to say, Years in My Master's Hermitage, where you just feel, I love the chapter where Sri Teshwar gives these exalted discourses all night long till the dawn comes, and his master describes them, treasures against time. And then Sri Teshwar said, oh, it's dawn. Let's walk by the Ganges. And he takes his hand, and these two avatars, guru and disciple, playing the part in that lifetime, walk along the banks of the Ganges. In your mind's eye, feel that Masters takes your hands, and you're walking together in the divine consciousness, wherever it might be, hand in hand, guru and disciple, God's instrument personalized, knowing exactly the karmic knots that have to be untied and how to do it. Master says in autobiography, <clears throat> for every blow Sri Teshwar dealt my vanity, for every tooth he loosened in my metaphorical jaw, I am grateful beyond facility to express. The guru-disciple relationship, yes, it's strolling by the Ganges, but it's the blows to the vanity of ego. And if you're not ready for that, Master will pat you on the head and say, okay, 
we'll we'll play this time. But if you're saying, I want out, be ready. Be ready. And don't be afraid. He knows what he's doing. And then finally, it is not only hope for individuals, but it's hope for humanity. Because in the pages of this book, it shows that there, the destiny of our planet is governed by these great spiritual guardians who know what they're doing, who have an understanding of the spiritual evolution of our planet. And sometimes you think, how I've heard people say people who have grown embittered by life, how can a a benevolent God allow such things to happen? Well, karma has to be paid off. And people have to go through what they need to go through. But it does not mean that they're not watching. It does not mean that they're not guiding it in the way that it needs to be guided. We've shared this story with some of you, but during the partition between Pakistan and India, uh, some disciples of the great woman Saint Ananamoy Ma came to her. They were in the government, and they said, "Please, Ma, this partition is going to bring untold suffering. Can't you, with your cosmic power, can't you stop it?" And she went. To, she took it seriously, and she went away for several hours, and prayed, meditated, communed with the communed with the infant, and she came back and simply said. Don't you think he who created this world knows how to govern it? And so we have that hope. It's so easy in this time of turbulence of Dwapara Yuga to say, the world, what hope is there? The insanity that we find all around us. But these great ones are guiding it. And I will read one last passage from Autobiography of great hope. Mahavatar Babaji is in constant communion with Christ. Together they send out vibrations of redemption and have planned the spiritual technique of salvation for this age. The work of these two fully illumined masters, one with the body and one without it, is to inspire the nations to forsake suicidal wars, race hatreds, religious sectarianism, and the boomerang evils of materialism, written in 1946. Could have been written last night. Babaji is well aware of the trend of modern times, especially of the influence and complexities of Western civilization, and realizes, not realized, realizes the necessity of spreading the self-liberations of yoga equally in West and East. So there is no reason with using this book as the most profound guide, the most profound vibration in our being. There is no reason for loss of hope or faith or joy. Yogananda was not only, as the title of our talk today was, India's Messenger of Joy. 
Yogananda was God's messenger for world upliftment, and the autobiography of a yogi is the carrier wave that brings that to the world.